we've been uh, looking at some passages in Judges, and uh, <clears throat> uh, over the last two weeks we looked at the story of Gideon and how uh, we see God is a God who delivers his people. He brings deliverance for people who end up in places where they don't belong. But he's also a God who requires dependence on him. So here's Gideon, and he tells Gideon, you're going to be this mighty warrior. You're going to do amazing things, and um, you're going to bring relief to your people. And then he says, uh, actually, Gideon, I'm going to do it, and everybody's going to know I'm going to do it. And so last week we saw that he, he took all these soldiers uh, from 32,000. The Lord was able to build up an army of 300. And that was all he needed, and they were able to conquer the Midianites. And so deliverance is promised by God, and when deliverance is, is there, is delivered, it also shows us our dependence on God, that we don't do this of our own strength. Um, we looked at how uh, there's this cycle in, in Judges where the people turn to the Lord and cry out to him. He delivers them. He helps them out. They honor God. They obey him and peace and prosperity comes and in the midst of that blessing people get proud and they begin to say you know we're pretty good at doing this ourselves and somehow following that is this calamity let me let me just jump forward here's the here's the cycle i drew up there's some kind of a a calamity after pride and rebellion and then that leads back into oppression where we've wandered astray we've ended up where we don't belong and it hurts, and then we despair. And in our despair, we cry out to God, and he does a work of repair again. And so that's kind of been our cycle. And you can see that um, different biblical scholars label it different ways. This is mine. Um, you're welcome to borrow it. But we've seen that, that uh, last week that in the problem of abandoning God, he doesn't just want our attention. He doesn't just want our eyes fixed on him. He wants our dependence. He wants us to rely on him and to depend on him for the things that we need. And then I'm going to jump forward here. We can see Gideon showed us about deliverance, how we get freed from oppression, and then dependence, how God calls us to rely on him. And today, we're actually going to go backwards, and we're going to talk about Deborah and how God requires devotion to him. So um, we might be really comfortable with the first two. I would suggest that it's a little harder to do each successive one. You know, to cry out and say, God, help me. That, that's a natural when we end up in places that are just really hard places. Oh, Lord, help. <laughs> and uh, he tends to respond to that. <coughs> Dependence is where the Lord says, okay, I'm going to help, but you're going to believe me for this, and I'm going to take you through this. Um, That's a little harder. Devotion is even harder when the Lord says, I'm going to do things now, and uh, I want you to follow. I'm going to to speak to you now, and I want you to, to devote yourself to what I'm going to say. And so um, in this story of Deborah, and we're going to pick it apart here a little bit. So if you want to turn in the book of Judges, if you've got your Bibles with you, if not, I'm going to have lots of scripture verses up here that, for you to look at. Um, you can pick it up in Judges chapter 4. 
But there's something that's already going on here with Deborah. Um, and so it's, it's almost as though we come into the story part way. And before we get to Deborah, if you've never read the book of Judges, um, you should do that because it's got these incredibly vivid stories that are just bizarre. And Deborah, who is one of the judges, follows on the heels of Ehud. Um, and I, I'm going to tip my hand here a little bit. I'm not going to tell you the story. This is a challenge for you to go read some more scripture. But Ehud is one of those passages of scripture that if I have to teach junior high boys, I'm going to tell them the story of Ehud. Because Ehud is this guy who helps get the people of Israel out of a bind in the most unlikely and disgusting ways. And that's it. It's nasty, and it'll make junior high boys laugh. And it makes us think, why in the world did Ehud do that? But it works. Um, So we kind of pick up, Ehud has just passed away, and here comes Deborah. And Deborah is a natural leader. And I'll point to a couple of passages to show you that. Deborah is someone that God has given the ability to lead. And I say that because um, in some circles, that's not really welcomed. Uh, In some of our evangelical circles, women don't lead. And I would just suggest that's not always the case. In fact, it's often the case that women do lead and they've been given abilities and they've been given opportunities and they should lead. And so we're going to pick up here how here is Deborah and the people just naturally turn to her for advice. They look to her for judgment. Now, when we say judges in this book, the way we see judges is judges arbitrating in a court of law and saying, you know, this is the way this is going to be. This is, you're going to get punished for violating the law or between people who have a dispute, this is the way the dispute is going to get settled. That isn't necessarily the way the judges operated in the Old Testament here in this little short period of time between Joshua and David um, or Saul. Instead, it was just that these people seemed to have some leadership ability granted by God and they rose to the forefront, usually to free the people from a place they didn't belong. Deborah is a little bit different because the people have already deferred to her and they've already used her sound judgment. And so think of Deborah not just necessarily as a judge in the court of law arbitrating, but think of Deborah as a counselor. You go to someone and you're saying, I cannot figure this out. Things just don't make sense. I'm confused and I'm distracted and I can't see what's up and what's down. And Deborah was this counselor who was able to just kind of lead people. This is the way of wisdom. This is the way things work. Now, in that, there were times when people came because they had disagreements, and there were times because you know, things had to be settled. But that's kind of the role that Deborah was filling. And then we read that God speaks to Deborah. And you would say, okay, you know, big deal. You know, the Lord speaks to Deborah. But there's this sense that the people agree. Yes, the Lord speaks to Deborah, and Deborah speaks to us. And so she fills this role in speaking from the Lord. So if you pick it up, we're just going to look at these two verses here. Sorry, yeah, two verses. 
three verses. Uh, in Judges 4, uh, 4 through 6, this is how Deborah is described. Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth, was a prophet. And just let's keep that term in mind because I want to talk to you a little bit about being a prophet and prophecy. Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth, was a prophet who was judging Israel at the time. She would sit under the palm of Deborah. She has a tree named after her. Between Ramah and Bethel, in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites would go to her for judgment. So you can, that judgment, you can also say wisdom. You can say, you know, they, they went to her because she figured things out. One day, she sent for Barak, son of uh, Abinoam, who lived in Kadesh in the land of Naphtali. She said to him, this is what the Lord the God of Israel commands you. Call out the 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun at Mount Tabor. Now, I just I want to stop here for a minute because gears got shifted here and we may not catch it. So here's Deborah and she's a judge. She's this counselor. She's this, this advisor to the people and arbitrator for the people. And they recognize that God speaks to her because we hear that she is defined as a prophet. So um, she has this sense that she's a prophet. And I just want to remind you what a prophet is. We, we tend to sensationalize what the work of a prophet is. And we tend to make it what we want it to be, which is we want prophecy to be when God tells us what's going to happen. It's sort of a divine weather forecasting. And so, you know, we want someone who can tell us the future so the future is no longer unknown. That is not the role of a prophet. In fact, I would argue with somebody who says that, that that is not how prophecy was employed in the Old Testament. The role of a prophet was for someone who hears from God, listens to God, and then goes and speaks to the people and said, hey, the Lord spoke to me and this is what he said. And so the the role of a prophet is just delivering a word from the Lord. And so there were times, many, many times, in the, in, when you read through the prophets later on, the major and the minor prophets in the later part of the Old Testament, there are many times the prophets aren't saying this is what's going to happen. They're saying this is what has happened. And so the prophets have a really uncomfortable word and they say to the people oftentimes, the Lord wants you to know you messed up. To Israel, you've been unfaithful. Your hearts have wandered. You've worshipped other gods. You've taken wives that I told you not to take and you've, you've not done the things I commanded you to do and you didn't keep the law and you haven't, you haven't been observing the holy days. This is what you have done. It has nothing to do with the future. At that point, it just has, hey, do you know what you're doing? The Lord wants you to know this is what you're doing. And so part of the role of the prophet is to listen to God and speak to the people. Now, in the Old Testament, there were these really clearly defined roles. And so the role of a prophet was different to the role of a priest. And the role of a priest was to live among the people and listen to the people and then go into the temple or into the tabernacle and speak to God about the people. So... Prophet is from God to the people. Priest is from the people to God. 
And so the role of a priest is to advocate for the people and cry out to God on behalf of the people. The role of the prophet is, this is what the Lord says, and I'm speaking for God. I would rather be a priest. I would rather be a priest and listen to you guys and then go to the Lord and say, hey, these people down here that you love, this is what's going on with us. I love the priestly role. I'm really uncomfortable with the prophetic role. Because sometimes God tells us things we don't want to hear. And sometimes God tells us things that uh, aren't really that comfortable. They don't really comfort us that much. And so you have these prophets in the Old Testament that said things that the people had a hard time listening to. And some prophets are defined by the sadness of their message. So you have the prophet Jeremiah who hears from the Lord and we call Jeremiah, you know, his nickname is the weeping prophet because he hears from God and he says, God, this is so sad. This is breaking the heart of your people, but it broke your heart too. And there's this sad, sad story to tell that Jeremiah has to deliver. So if that's true, I just want to ask you this question. And <laughs> you don't have to shout out an answer that your answer is Pastor Hink. But I, I, I just ask this question. I want you to evaluate this in your own heart and mind. Who is prophetic in your life? That when they say something, you go, that's from God. That's just not an opinion. That's not just another subjective idea. It, this is the, that's a word from the Lord. Um, you, you've probably had this experience. Maybe you've had it with me. If you have, I deeply apologize. But I had this experience recently where I, I, I sought out a friend, a friend I've known for years. And I contacted him and said, hey, I, can I talk to you? Yeah, we can talk to you. And so we got together and we sat down and talked. And it was good. We hadn't seen each other for a while. And I just, you know, I just wanted him to be my friend and to listen for a while and tell me I was his friend and I'm a good guy. And the whole conversation got flipped over to him. And he started telling me everything he's doing and what's going on in his life. And he just kind of, and I realized at that moment that... <laughs> What I thought would come out of the conversation is not. And, and here, so here was my hindsight on this. Is I was going to him looking for encouragement, and I went to him and had to give it. <laughs> I was like, I got in my car after I go, Lord, that is not what you were supposed to do there. You messed up. <laughs> Don't ever do that. And the Lord said, well, you blessed him, so get over it and drive home. But here's the thing. We all need prophetic people in our lives. I need prophetic people in my life. My life and, 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 and newsflash, this sometimes is you. Where I'm wrestling with and trying to discern things and you are probably completely unaware at times when I'm having a conversation with you and you might say something and I'm sitting here nodding going, oh yeah, that fits with what the Lord has led me to. That fits with what I've been reading in my devotional time of reading scripture that fits with conversations I'm having with other people and it's not just you speaking it's the Lord speaking through you thank you even though you don't always know that you're doing that although with some of you I've said and thus saith the Lord you know so thank you 
But we all need that. If we're going to be followers of the Lord, we need people who are prophetic in our lives. We like to hear from the Lord directly. We like to hear his voice. But oftentimes he disguises his voice in the face of another. Who's prophetic in your life? So here's Deborah, and she's prophetic. People recognize that. They say, well, you know, we went and we talked to Deborah, and it was, it was like, this is what the Lord would tell me to do. And Deborah is this wise counselor, speaker from God. And the Lord speaks directly to Deborah. And this, is, this gets really uncomfortable because he speaks and she has to summon Barak. And so she says, hey, Barak, come here. And he comes and he goes, get the armies together. We're going to war. This is, this is what she says to him. This is the word of the Lord, Barak. We're going to war. And uh, Barak sits down with Deborah and she, he hears this from her. And that's a typical response. There's probably some cultural overlay here. There's other stuff going on where he, the commander of the army, has to listen to her. And are you sure? But here's the thing. This is what I see in Barak. Barak is not just a faithless guy. Barak is a typical guy. Okay, now we can use that in the worst sense. See, we're already laughing. You know... How many of us men, let's be honest, would go, you know, when we're driving somewhere and we've kind of lost our bearings and we're not sure where we're at, would go, I don't know where I am right now. Maybe I should stop for some directions. So I had this experience recently in a place where I don't like to have this experience because I've had it there several times before, but we were driving into Mozambique and there's all kinds of road construction going on and um, my friend Davi, we used his pickup truck, and he was driving us down there, which was lovely, and Kayleen and I got to rest a little bit and relax and just have a conversation. We crossed the border. We got into Mozambique and into the country, and he stops, and he says, I want you to drive from here. Now, what you need to know is from here, that next piece is the worst it's the worst traffic, it's the worst police, it's the worst roads, it's the most confusing. And he goes, you know where to go, right? And I go, yeah, we're going to go on this road that goes that direction. It goes east. And I said, where the construction is, you can't go. Now, you have to understand, in the United States, we use nice big orange cones and lights and signs that flash. Get in that lane and let me tell you, after complaining about Kellogg and 235 for a couple months, I, I came back and told the Lord, I'm going to be silent for a while about that because the Lord just reminded me, you are fortunate people. So I get there and here's the construction. I said, we're not turning there. We're going to turn up here to the left. Well, you know, when I'm only there about once a year, things change. And so buildings don't quite look the same. So I said, I think I've missed the turn. I'm just going to turn here. We're going to turn left and we're going to go east and I'll wander my way back. Well, wandering got more and more adventurous. And, and so then someone in the back seat says, do you, do you know where you are? No, I really don't. I, I mean, I know that I am somewhere north and east of the capital of Maputo, but, you know, that covers a lot of territory. But I said, I think we just need to keep going this way. And then everybody's eyes are glued outside. They're looking, you know, can we see the big road where we're supposed to be at? And, 
And we, but there was a sense of peace because we know that we're going the right direction and eventually we'll run into the Indian Ocean and then you go north. Eventually we found the road and we got back on and then there's just a sigh of relief and then I drove for about another hour and then I said, okay, that's good. I got you through the bad stuff. Get back in and drive, Dobby. So here's Barack and he comes to Deborah and he's being given directions. Barack, you're going to assemble an army and you're going to go. And he's a little bit unsure of these directions, maybe a lot unsure. Regardless, he has this typical response. When we hear from the Lord, it challenges us. The Lord rarely speaks when we have things in hand. The Lord speaks when he wants us to do something that just seems out of the ordinary. And so there's this typical response. We hear from God and we go, Lord, are you right? Are you sure? I mean, remember Gideon. So jump forward to Gideon's story because Gideon, when the Lord comes to him, he goes, I'm not sure about this. And, and like four times, Gideon goes back and says, Lord, I need to know for sure. So he brings an offering and then he, he brings this fleece and he does all this different stuff going, Lord, Confirm it. I need to know. If I'm going to go do this, I need to know this is you. Well, Barak does the same thing. He only does it once. Well, twice. But he, he says, really? Are you sure about this? You had better be right, Deborah, because our army will be destroyed if you are wrong. The stakes are incredibly high. And it's a typical response. Uh, you know, the, the, Ross Perot's old saying, measure once, cut twice? No. Measure twice, cut once. Check. Be sure before you do it. And this is what he is saying here is, hey, let's be sure. You better be right, Deborah. And Deborah's response is, oh, hold on a minute. See, here's what Barak says in verse 8. Barak told her, I will go, but only if you go with me. I'll go, we'll, we'll get the armies together and we'll go, but if I'm going to die, you're going to die. And that seems really unreasonable of Barak, except, you know, remember, there's a thing about prophets in the Old Testament. The Lord said, if a prophet is a false prophet, what should we do with them? Kill them. That's exactly right. If a prophet's a false prophet, you should put them to death. They're not, if they're not speaking directly from me, then they're going to lead you astray and you should just cut it off. Now, Barak uses a different way. I mean, he pulls her in and there's, a, there's another level of faithlessness here to Barak. But he goes, you know, I'll go, but you've got to go with me because if you're a false prophet, you're dying too. And I am sure that a battlefield at that time during the Iron Age was not a nice place for women. I'm certain of that. And so Barak is going, you are going to be all in if I'm all in, and this is what we're going to do. So Barak says, I'll go if you go with me. But here, he, he's just asking this prophet to back it up. Come on, is this really what's going on? And I'm not trying to let Barak off the hook because he loses out on this to some degree in a moment. But it's a typical response. If I come to you and said, you know, the Lord told me we're to, we're to paint the entire outside of the church bright pink. Some of you would go, the Lord? How about if you buy the paint and start painting, Pastor? 
How about if you do that? Go for it, and we'll sit back and see what the Lord does with that. Well, Barak was at least going to do it, but he says, you're going to do this with me. If I'm going to be embarrassed, you're going to be embarrassed. If I'm going to be killed, you're going to be killed. You have a stake in this, Deborah. You're not just sending me off on a wild goose chase. And, and we see that kind of response holds an element of danger. Look out. <clears throat> and here's the thing. <clears throat> Barak's going to win the battle. That's, I'm going to, okay, spoiler alert. He wins the battle, but he doesn't get the honor. And even that's not entirely true because when you read Deborah's song in the next chapter, she sings about Barak and she does give him some honor. But she says this to her. She goes, Barak, you know what? You'll go, you'll win. But a woman is going to have the honor. Now, that's obviously when everybody hears her say that, if there were any within earshot, they go, yeah, Deborah, you're the one. Everybody's going to say it was Deborah that did it, not Barak. See, there's, there's no honor in saying, no, Lord, I don't believe. There's no honor in that. And um, I want to unpack that a little bit. You see, um, I want to talk to you a little bit about what it means to be heroic and a leader. And I want to suggest to you that bravery is a form of faith. Um, I'm not sure I understand this. I, this is Veterans Day today. Um, in fact, I, I will tell you, I preferred Armistice Day. It's the 100-year anniversary of Armistice Day at the end of World War I, the Great War, the war to end all wars, that didn't end all wars. But they signed the armistice this day, and the war was over. The soldiers that survived went home. Um, when you look back at World War I and the way the war was waged, some of you remember from history classes that World War I was the, the era of trench warfare. It was the first war where tanks were used. It was the first war where machine guns were widely used. It was the first war where chemical weapons were widely used. It was devastating. And millions and millions died. And so Armistice Day was a celebration that we don't have to kill each other anymore. It was a celebration of the end of war. And we want to give veterans their due and their honor, but I just want to remind you in this that, that bravery is a form of faith. <laughs> and, and sometimes it seems ridiculous. So these young, young men who were living in these trenches in Europe would receive the command and they would say, okay, we're going to charge the enemy at a certain time and they would get the ladders ready to climb out of the trenches and then a Usually an officer would blow a whistle and they were commanded. You're going to get out of this trench and you're going to run toward them and you're going to shoot and you're going to fight. And many of them knew, I'm not going to live. Or if I live, I'm going to be shot or I'm going to be wounded and I'm going to be hurt. But in some crazy sense of human consciousness, they did it. Over and over again, wave after wave after wave. And there's these acts of hero, heroism that are just very difficult to understand. If you remember, some of you probably remember in the history of World War I, there was this group of Marines. <clears throat> Here you go, Sid, this is for you. 
There was a group of Marines that got cut. They were told, just keep going forward, just keep going forward. And they did. And they, they had concerns about being outflanked. The people on their sides were not going to be their friends. They were going to be the enemies. And they kept moving forward into a patch of woods called Bella Wood. And the Battle of Bella Wood was horrible. They got cut off. They were called the Abandoned Battalion. They got completely cut off and they were starving and they were freezing and they were dying. And yet they held on. Somehow they held on. And eventually the, the tide of the war shifted a little bit. It took about two weeks, I think, to get them out of there. And uh, the Allied forces moved forward again and they found them. And these men were barely alive. And for some reason they didn't just say, you know what, we should just give up. Let's just give ourselves over to the Germans and go and become prisoners of war. There was this sense that we believe by holding on, even though we have nothing to eat, no ammunition to shoot, if we just stay here and hold out, someone will come for us. That, my friends, is an incredible step of faith. That takes a lot of faith. Bravery is a form of faith. And I would just suggest to you, or maybe, maybe courage is a better word than bravery, bravery, but I would suggest to you that following God and listening to his voice requires a tremendous amount of courage because he is going to say things that require us to go beyond what other people believe. And here's the thing. We know this about leadership. You can see it around us. Good leaders are always the ones that go ahead of their followers. They're always the ones that say, no, I will go first. You see... In, in World War I, in this trench warfare, there were two kinds of officers. There were the officers in the trenches with the men, and then there were the rear echelon guys who were just pushing pins around on a map. And we think we have this trench secured, and it's ours now, and things like that. But the officers in the trench were the ones that would blow the whistle, and they were always the first ones out of the trench. They would blow the whistle, and out we go. And they paid a heavy price. Um, real leaders go ahead of followers. Cowardly leaders send the followers out first. And we see this in the scriptural sense when Jesus calls spiritual leaders, pastors, to be shepherds of the sheep. You see, sheep never go in front. Sheep follow a shepherd. That's the way it is. And so, you know, here's this piece of leadership where Barack, who is the leader of the military, and Deborah, who is this spiritual leader, come advisor and counselor, and Barack says, I'll go, but only if you go with me. And there's a, there's a reversal of roles here for a moment. And she becomes the leader where he should have been the leader, and he shrinks back from that. I'll only go if you go with me. The leaders go ahead. I just want to remind you that when we hear a word from the Lord, there are things that we should have confidence in. We should have confidence, number one, in God's character. God's character, I don't think, changes. Ever. And so when we read that God is love, God is always love. When we read that God is just, God is always just. When we read that God is merciful, God is always merciful. Anytime we say God is, that's a part of his character. And we can be confident in his character. 
The next piece is we can be confident in God's promises. When God says, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm going to do. I promise you I will do this. God always keeps his promises. And there are times when we hold on to those as though we're just holding on with our fingernails. But God is a God who keeps his promises. And it may not be kept in one generation, but from generation to generation, those promises are true. Next, God knows his plans and he will work his plans. And so when the Lord says, you know, there are things I want to do here, he is going to do that. Now, if we are faithless and don't obey and go with him, he'll find other people to work the plans. But we can be confident that his plans are what he's going to carry out. And then final is um, we can be confident of God's instructions. This might be the hardest one. I like God's promises. That's great. God promises good stuff. I like God's plans. God promises to do great things and reconcile the world to himself. But how? (laughs) It comes down to instructions. So I don't always like God's instructions We don't always like God's instructions when the Lord says, this is how I'm going to do this. So you look back through the Old Testament when the Lord spoke to these prophets and said, I'm going to bring Israel back to myself. I'm going to restore the remnant to Jerusalem. There were hundreds of different ways the prophets said that message. But in the meantime, the people knew that, how are you going to do that, Lord? Oh, you're going to go into exile and you're going to learn how to live for me when you're a minority and you have no power. And then I'll bring you back. And so we have all these verses in the Old Testament. I will restore, I will bring you back, and I will make streams run in the desert again because I restore Israel. That's how I work. But the instructions part is really hard. So here is Barak, and he receives what is very clearly an instruction. You're going to gather the the army, and you're going to go. And he's struggling with that. Deborah doesn't struggle with that. She understands. I heard this from the Lord. She has this confidence in the word of the Lord. So she goes, Barak, this is from God. So yeah, I'll go because God said this is what you're going to do. And she is confident in his instruction. And then, of course, in this, she says, you know, I'll go with you, but you're not going to have the honor. The honor is going to go to a woman. So this is where the story gets really bizarre and hideous. And so this is, and we just got to talk about a little bit of horror and honor. Um, and, and this is where, you know, where people would have predicted and said, yeah, Deborah's going to be the one that gets the honor and we're going to win and they'll come back and everybody's going to say, it wasn't Barack, it was Deborah. That's not the way things played out. And uh, quite frankly, I struggle with the way things played out and it has to do with another woman. So you have this woman, J.L., that enters the scene. You see, Barack goes to battle. They, they are winning there's some really interesting descriptives in the story because we're told that, that they're, they're fighting against Sisera. Sisera is the leader of the army that they're fighting. And, and Sisera is defined, the, the way he's identified is he's the guy that has iron-clad chariots. Now, understanding archaeology of the time, this is in the Iron Age, and so he figured out the technology to wrap wooden chariots with iron so that they wouldn't be pierced by spears and arrows and things like that. It also made the chariots incredibly heavy, is what historians point out. That, you know, this, these are great. These are, these are iron sides, but they are also like 
riding around in a cast iron skillet. And so, you know, he has this incredible technology, but here's one of the things we know. Um, when you have heavy chariots, you're going to wear out your horses. <laughs> and so he, he's losing, and he runs, and he flees. And as he's running, Cicero's running, and so I think, quite subjectively, but I, I really think he wore himself and his army out because they were too heavily laden. They had so much technology, but they did not have the Lord. I'm reminded of that verse there where the psalmist, where David says, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, heavy chariots and weak horses. So Cicero runs and he's exhausted and he gets to this little enclave of this little group of people. And Jael is there. She is the wife of Heber the Kenite. And these people are Switzerland. They're neutral in this. They haven't taken sides between the Israelites and, um, I'm drawing a blank here, Julie, who was it? I know you got your Bible open. Canaanites, thank you. They haven't taken sides. And, and, and so they're, they're sort of saying, hey, this isn't our fight at this point. This isn't about us. And, and Sisera runs and he comes there and J.L. comes out to meet him. And he's obviously panting and out of breath and looks like he's running scared. And he says, you've got to hide me. And, and even asks her, says, you know, if someone comes and asks about me, tell them I'm not here. Never mind the iron chariot parked out front. You know, or the chariot, you know, the, 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 the grooves that lead right to your house and don't go on. But anyway, he says, hide me and, and don't let them get me in. So she says, sure, come inside. And he's exhausted. So he says, can you give me a, a, a glass of water? And I, I'll be honest with you, I didn't spend a whole lot of time figuring this piece out. But she says, no, I won't give you water. I'll give you milk. And you can, if you want to email me or talk to me later, tell me why that's significant. I'd like to hear it because <clears throat> I didn't dig into that that much. But she gives him a glass of milk and she covers him up. He lays down in the tent and he goes to sleep. He's exhausted. He thinks I'm safe. I asked for safety. I asked for protection and she brought me in. She thinks, he thinks he's safe. Now JL could have done the easy thing. She could have just stood outside and sat there waiting until Barak showed up with the Israelites. And when they come, he's in there. Do whatever you're going to do, but there he is. She could have done that, but she doesn't do that. Of course, it doesn't make for a good movie. Instead, Sisera falls asleep, and Jael hatches this plan, and she goes and gets a tent stake that they use to stake down their tent. And some of you know this story. She goes in while he's asleep, and she drives the stake through his head into the ground, it says. Now, <clears throat> this is horrible. This is why I say this is about horror and honor. Um, really and truly, this is premeditated murder. He's asked for safety. She is neutral in her family. She welcomes him in, and then as soon as she gets him to sleep, she murders him. So there's murder and there's treachery because all of a sudden we pick the side and we pick the side in a very obvious way. And when everybody else shows up chasing him, where's he at? He's kind of stuck back there. <laughs> stuck to the ground back there. 
<laughs> but you know, the imagery, I just go, wow, this is crazy. And this woman, uh, so as I was thinking about this this week, I was driving back up here to the church on, I think it was Thursday morning. I left our house and I, I had this scripture in my head and had just read it before I left the house. And <laughs> I'm driving this. It occurred to me that after this event, I bet you Heber the Kenite thought twice before arguing with his wife. He knows what she's capable of. My wife skewered the guy through his noggin. I mean, this is not for the timid. This is not for the faint of heart. She perpetrates a brutal killing. So if you think for a moment, guys, that, that women are the fair sex, they are, but boy, howdy, they are capable of horror. And so this is what happens. And, and she does this, and the people of Israel see this as an act of deliverance. In fact, in modern Hebrew, Yael, Y-A-E-L is how they pronounce it now. Yael is a very common name among Jewish women today. So you can see that in Jewish history, they go, she was great, she was awesome, she's a hero. If we had been standing there watching, we'd go, she is scary, she is crazy. We're not spending the night, dear. <laughs> so there's, there's this crazy thing going on where she perpetrates this incredible act of horror, and yet she is honored for that. She's honored for that. Some of our soldiers come home from perpetrating horror at our request. We're the ones that ask them to go and do that for us. Defend us. And they come home broken because they have had to do horrible things at our request. Let's not forget that. It's not just about waving flags and marching in parades. It's brutal and costly. But for Barak, this had to be the ultimate reproof. I, I used another word there and I backed it off a little bit. But this was, he, this was reproof. Barak, you doubted. You were fearful. You said, I'll only go, Deborah, if you go because I'm really not sure about your connection to God. I think maybe you lost the cell signal with him there for a minute. And this is reproof. Barak could have been known as a mighty warrior in the history of Israel, but he was known as one who doubted and feared. And so there's this reproof. Barak, the honor's going to go to a woman. Now, I'm just going to tell you, okay, let's put some salt in the wound for Barak a moment. The honor's going to go to a woman. She's not even an Israelite woman. She's a Kenite. And the honor's going to go to a woman, and she kills him in his sleep with a tent peg. None of this dying in the honor of battle. He gets murdered. And so you can see that with Barak in the history books of Israel, there's this big asterisk that says, yeah, he won 
the battle. He, he had Sisera on the run, but Sisera died in his sleep, covered in a blanket, having a belly full of milk. Really, Brock. And so, you know, this is reproof for the doubt and fear. Here's, here's you know, as I read this, I just thought, okay, Lord, you know, when you call us to do things, and we go, yeah, I'm not sure. And then other people do it. And it just, it's just like, wow. That hurts. That hurts Barack. In a way, I say, wow, that hurts Deborah because Deborah didn't shirk any of her responsibility. But she sings this song and she puts JL in the song in the next chapter, in, in chapter 5. But here's the thing JL is, she's unlikely. She's not involved in the battle. They are neutral. They, this is not our fight, honey. She's unlikely to this. She's unworthy. She's not a soldier. She hasn't been told by God to do this that we've seen. But in the moment, she says, I'm not letting this guy get away. And she kills him. She's unlikely. She's unworthy. And then she's honored. I just imagine that after this, everyone knew the address of Heber the Kenite and told their kids, just keep walking. But not for the people of Israel. To them, it was, she did it. She saved us. In chapter 5, in just this little portion, now if you go before this, it's a whole chapter where Deborah sings her song, and she sings about Barak and... You know, he's in there. It's kind of interesting. She does give him some honor. But then she says this. <laughs> and I just go, what? But she says, most blessed among women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Really? Most blessed. She would be a great Halloween character. She's so scary. But no, she's blessed. Most blessed. May she be blessed above all women who live in tents. You know, I just can imagine that for the next, you know, so it, it may have been too soon right away, but eventually, you know, as people were moving tents around and husband pulled his tent up and he pulls the tent stake and hands it to his wife to put away and says, uh, here, jail. <laughs> now, you know, this is vivid. And every time the people of Israel are going to strike their tents, they're going to be reminded of this. And, and over and over again, that this woman did this and she was not of us. She was someone else and they were nomadic and they were just people that were bystanders on the sidelines and God used her to do something horrible and necessary. Here's what I think. I think we as God's people should be listening when God speaks, but I think we need to work up and get some courage in place. Because if we're not courageous, God, if we're not brave, if we're not faithful, God is going to find some bystander who is unlikely and unworthy and he will use them and they will get remembered because of that. So here's my challenge to you as we close today. I just challenge you to listen to God's voice. Believe his promises, his plans, and his instructions. And in his character, obviously. And let's be willing to do what he calls us to do. Band, come back up. But we're gonna we're gonna sing in closing um, a great hymn, and uh, 
We're going to live with that challenge. Listen, believe, and do. I'm going to invite our ushers to come forward. We're going